Well, I can't see a thing that's changed But I sure as hell don't feel the same You're still young, don't get caught up in all the mistakes you haven't made All right. Welcome, everybody, to Don't Look Down. Uh, I've lost count what episode this is, maybe seven, but I'm, um, as always, excited uh, for today's conversation. My guest today has a powerful personality because she's passionate. She's probably one of the most passionate people that I know. She is passionate about life. She's passionate about health. She's passionate about helping people get the most out of both of those things. She's an award-winning health and nutrition coach. She holds a certification in plant-based nutrition from Cornell. She's a co-host of a health podcast. She is a published author, and she's also a yoga teacher. So welcome, Julie Brar. How are hey. you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. And since we had our pre-interview conversation. I've been looking forward to this because as always, I always feel like I get to know my guests a little bit better. Um, and we, we, we always tend to land on some, some great little tidbits of knowledge and insight that um, just makes the interview better. And we can pass along to the listeners. So you are, I'm going to dive right in here. You're an incredibly vocal and visible person when it comes to your passion for nutrition and you're also uh, an animal rights activist so anybody who knows you or follows you is very aware of your passion in these areas but what always intrigues me about people is where they come from and the adversities that they've had to overcome in their own lives that help them to rise up stronger so let's start there, and maybe for people who don't know you really well personally, tell us a little bit about where you came from, your early life, your family, your upbringing. Let us know who you are. Um, I'm a prairie girl, so I was born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And uh, a little known fact about me was when I was about a year old, my mom took my sister and myself and uh, left us with my aunts and uncles and grandparents in India. So I lived in India for about four years, and then I came back to Canada. So um, I remember my first, even though I'm like a Canadian born and raised, my first memory of Canada is really coming back to Winnipeg in the dead of winter and it being really cold. <laughs> And even I remember growing up, I used to ask my mother all the time, like, why did you guys pick Winnipeg? Why not California? Because <laughs> I hated the cold. And um, yeah, so I lived in, I grew up in Winnipeg. I left Winnipeg when I was about 18. I also left my parents uh, legally when I was 15. So I left home. Um, I left my family when I was 15 years old because my parents were super traditional and I just, I just didn't want to be told what to do. 
<laughs> so if you know me now, like I'm pretty much the same way. I don't like being told what to do. Yeah, pretty, pretty traditional thinking for, for a 15 year old. But um, I mean, you just definitely, you went that next step to having your independence and having your own life. So clearly you are a nonconformist. Um, you have your own ideas and you're very passionate about your ideas and you believe in what you believe in strongly. And I, I really admire you about that because uh, a lot of people don't have the courage to step up and stand their ground when it comes to their beliefs, especially if they're not met with, um, you know, welcomed by the masses. So you come from a traditional culture, but at an early age, you decided not to conform. So why do you think that that was? What was it about you that made you feel that way? Um, I like to discover things for myself. I like to learn and educate myself and um, really understand why I'm doing something that what I'm doing or why, like I, I, don't, I don't just follow the norm and that's, it's always been like that. That hasn't changed <laughs> at all. Like it, I remember when I was a kid, I was reading books that other people, other kids around me weren't reading. Um, like I actually was reading about dairy when I was like 12 years old, I was reading nutrition books and I had no idea that one day I would actually, you know, get certified in nutrition and actually be helping people in it. But I just was like, I remember reading about like how cows stomachs are different than human human stomachs and how the makeup of cow milk is different than human milk. And I just told my mom, I'm like, why do we drink milk? We shouldn't drink milk. Like we're not cows, <laughs> you know? And this would have been like in the eight, in the like late eighties or early nineties kind of deal. Right. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's just in my makeup. Like I like to understand, I want to, I want to go under under the surface of of everything. So I really um, am connecting with why I'm doing something. Mm -hmm. That's amazing because uh, yeah, I think uh, I think I know as as a mother, I encourage my children to always ask questions. Um, so and actually that that just came out of me and has led me into another amazing thing that we talked about the other day about being a mother and so you don't have children at this point in your life and when we were talking the other day you had decided that it was something right now that wasn't um it wasn't something that you were choosing to do and it made me think about how society tends to see women who choose another path other than motherhood um, Give me your thoughts on that topic as we discussed it the other day. Um, I think, well, part of it was when I was growing up, my, my mother had told me that the expectation was that uh, they were going to find a husband for me and marry me off, and I was expected to have children. So I think on a subconscious level, my not having kids, even when I got married, had to do with that. But the other part of it is also that I don't do very well with society telling me that I need to be a mother in order to complete my mission on this earth. And I see that so much in how 
women are marketed to and spoken to. And it's like somehow as a woman, you have less value if you choose not to procreate. But we live on a planet of almost 8 billion people and a planet in peril right now. And it doesn't look like it from the part of the world that we're so privileged to live in. But in mm -hmm. actuality, the, the planet is in, in a massive decline. And so part of my not having kids had to do with what was going on with the planet. This was a conversation that I did have with my husband. Um, the other part of it is that I don't like societal pressure to, you know, to uh, become a mother in order to fulfill my role as a woman. And I feel that there's, there's room, there are other ways that I nurture and I mother in my life that make me feel fulfilled. And the fact that I don't have kids means that I also have the opportunity to spend more time helping others, being devoted to other causes that maybe my friends who have kids don't have the, the mental or the emotional bandwidth for. Um, I'm able to show up and, you know, go to climate marches and go, you know, stand on the grounds of the provincial legislature and talk about why we shouldn't allow certain bills to pass, uh, pass, the, pass the legislature and meet with my MPPs and do all that kind of stuff that I, what I see with a lot, it's also the lie of, of motherhood where you're told that we don't have a society where there's, there's equal division of labor in households. Overwhelmingly, I see most of my women friends who have kids bearing the burden of being mothers. The fathers are not as involved, right? They try to be. It's better than when I was growing up, but it's still not equal. So now you're going to work and you're having to worry about like getting your kids to soccer practice and dance recital and all of these other things. And or what I saw happen during COVID, which was many women having to worry about how are they going to do their job because a lot of them were able to work from home and school their kids somehow it fell on them and not the men and so to me it's also part of my not wanting to go down that path was i also wanted to be able to have a career and i wanted to be able to have things that mattered to me outside of my home and that was really, really important. And we don't like, we desperately need a national daycare uh, system, but that hasn't happened. So families are bearing the brunt of having kids because it's expensive to put your kids in daycare. And uh, the women in the household, predominantly, not all the time, but predominantly, they have to shoulder most of the work. And to me, it's just a completely, so you're, you're, you're sold this fairy tale life of being a mother and having a family and, you know, two kids, white picket fence, the beautiful wedding and all of the stuff. And it's like, but there's work. It takes work. Who's doing that work? Mm -hmm. You know, and women still don't have equal pay for equal work. So we got a lot of work to do on the, in this in this culture in this society, and and I am a nonconformist. I I don't think that my and the thing also is I didn't feel the need to have biological children. 
I haven't shut the door on it. So one of the things is I was a foster kid. When I left home at 15, I was a foster child. So sometimes I think, well, maybe one day I will foster. Maybe one day I will adopt. And I tease, I tease my partner all the time. I'm like, when you're 70, we're going to adopt two kids. and It's going to keep you young. And he's like, no, no, I, I wouldn't want that. But it's like, I just, I just have a very different view and perspective. And, mm-hmm. and because I've stepped so far outside of the family conditioning, like I'm open to all perspectives. Yeah. And, and we need all those perspectives. And it's funny to, you know, at 15 years old, my, my own mother was a foster child. And her response to that was to have me at 16. So she... Wow. She, she, took it from, she took it from the other perspective that because she didn't have that family, she wanted that family. Now, my mother's life wasn't easy because of the choices that she made. Um, and I think you're right. Um, you know, couples uh, and families are, they're getting better at how they divide the workload. And, and I believe that men are trying to step up. But I mean, this could be, you and I could go on for hours because I love this conversation um, because I think that we've also confused um, genders and in in a lot of ways because sometimes the men maybe don't even know where they're supposed to fit anymore it used to be so clearly defined which was a problem in of itself um, because it it stunted individuality for our past generations Um, but I think that I guess I just also want to say thank you for advocating because because you have the time and the space and the bandwidth to do it. You're in essence advocating for my children. You're advocating for people who, you know, the next generation um, where, where they, they, need the, they need the help. And, you know, we are so busy being parents that, you know, sometimes we're just trying to keep our own worlds together. So as a mom... I want to thank you for that, (laughs) for being there for my kids. Um, So let's talk about, let's jump back just a little bit to um, you met your husband when you were relatively young, 23 years old. You got married when you were 28. And eight years after your marriage, when you got married, your husband passed away suddenly. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what happened and also where you were at at that point in your life and how you navigated this space between what obviously was intense trauma and grief to where you are now. Um, so he, he died of a heart attack. Um, there's a name in medical circles for the type of heart attack he had. Um, they call it the widow maker because it is such a it's such a massive heart attack that even if somebody is in emergency um, no one can save that individual so that's what happened to him i wasn't home at the time but i did come home to find him and uh i will try not to get emotional but it just ripped my world apart because at the time I was kind of pursuing my, one of my passions of, of acting and sort of being a full-time artist. So I was recurring on a Canadian TV series, um, 
I guess, Canadian-American co-production. I was producing a play. I was writing a play. So I was kind of enjoying this full-time artist life. And with his death, I didn't want to do anything. Um, uh, so I, I took time off to kind of gather myself. And then, and it wasn't easy. Like, be, I, we spoke the other day. I think part of my difficulty in sort of overcoming and moving through the grief was the fact that I didn't have a family to fall back on. And so, yes, I had friends. I had some really good friends. But when you're in such a state of devastation, it is hard to hold space when someone is that much in grief. And, and I lost a lot of friends over the course of me trying to figure, to pull myself together or to move through the grief. And I would say that I didn't really start to come out of it and come back to life till about 2016, 2017. And that because of what happened to him, like I decided, I, number one, I wanted to find out how somebody who looked healthy could die of a heart attack. So, and then my health had suffered so severely because of the shock and the trauma that I also had to figure out how I was going to function again. Cause I was somebody who was used to exercising and doing yoga and feeling good and energized. And I didn't, I, I went through a really dark period where I was suicidal. I was depressed. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't function. And so it took me a long time to get to a point where I could work and, or I even wanted to work. Right. So initially I came back to just teaching yoga. Then I decided I wanted to study nutrition and coaching. And so I kind of shifted into that. Um, it's, it's been a, it's been a journey, you know, it, it, it hasn't been easy. So when we had our conversation about children, I also brought up the word legacy. This word has come up in a couple of interviews that I've done. Uh, different people have different ideas of what it means to leave a legacy. For some people, it's very connected to their bloodline and to having children. I don't feel that way. And now I know that you don't feel that way either. So I guess I have a two-part question. One would be, what does it mean to you? What does the word legacy mean to you? And follow-up would be, what would be your husband's legacy? I think for me, having a legacy has to do with creating impact in the world. And that impact obviously can be to a very small group of people that you're connected to, or it could be a very large group of people. There are certain people that I think of, and I know what their legacy is just from the, what they've left behind. Um, Maya Angelou comes to mind, right? Like beautiful writer and poet, and like just this woman was, is a legend. And so, there's no mistaking that her legacy is far beyond her role as a mom. It's what she created. And so for me, legacy is really about creating impact and leaving impact in the world in a positive way, because we're here for such a finite amount of time. And after my husband passed away and we had his, his funeral service, and I spoke to a lot of people that he 
grew up with, or maybe he used to be a triathlete, so maybe people he trained with and knew through those circles. Everybody remembered him as someone who was just incredibly kind. Like no one had a bad word to say about him. And to me, like his legacy really is that, is that kind, kind-hearted soul that he was. And that's what I remember the most about him is his kindness. Mm-hmm. What an awesome memory to have. Um, what did his death teach you most about life? I learned that life is incredibly fragile. You know, that no one is guaranteed tomorrow. I mean, in his case, he had a heart attack, but we hear of so many tragedies, car accident, plane goes down, and, you know, we're, we're living in a pandemic times, so there, there's always that uh, thing in the background. Um, I think it's just to appreciate life and to appreciate the days that we have to live. That's what it's taught me. Mm-hmm. Did it change how you... We're living your own life? Uh, Yes, I feel like everything that I do now, like from the work that I do to what I do in my off time, I make sure that it's something that I'm passionate about. You know, I'm sure that to some people, the fact that I spend my off hours doing activism work probably seems a little bit crazy. Most people are probably Netflixing and chilling. Um, but I watch virtually no TV <laughs> for, for someone who started out in the film world and still occasionally go, go to auditions. I watch very little television. Um, I don't absorb a lot of mass media content. I make sure that I focus my energies into the things that I'm passionate about, like the, the, my clients, um, you know, my home with my partner now. And, you know, the, the people in my life that I'm fortunate to know, but more importantly, like just really spending time working for the causes that I believe in to keep pushing those causes forward. Mm -hmm. So from what you've learned through this journey, um, from his death, and then also from how you've chosen to embrace life. How do you think that people can learn this lesson without having to go through the traumatic death experience of the loved one? I would say having a gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. Because I think most people, they tell themselves that they're going to be happy when, or when they get X, Y, Z, they're going to appreciate what they have. And I think, just stopping every day. I use, I do a gratitude practice in the morning and at night, but I think just having that simple practice of reminding yourself what in your life you're grateful for or who in your life you're grateful for (laughs) just brings you so present in the here and the now. Uh And that's really what it is, is to get present because most of us live our life in our head in the past or projecting into the future. But Life is happening right now. And if we're not in appreciation of it, we're actually missing it. We're bypassing it. 
Mm-hmm. Totally agree. And I mean, this is something we've been hearing for years and years about the value of having a gratitude practice, whether it's, and it can take so many forms. I know that I've been through a lot of them, you know, starting off with a formal gratitude journal and then just a normal journal. And then, um, you know, I heard a teacher say once, you know, how long, how long do you have to practice? You have to practice until you no longer have to, meaning at some point it's, it's not a conscious practice anymore. You can literally just, I can literally stop in the middle of the day now and go, Oh, thank you for that. Like, wow, what a beautiful flower. Thank you for that. I never would have done that before. Um, so my gratitude practice isn't as formal anymore. Um, I don't write it down every single day, but I think it's important for people to know there's value in just even thinking it, you know, or, or if you want to say it out loud, say it out loud. But, and, and same as you, you know, when I, when I think about it, when I'm falling asleep, I try to list off a few things that were great about my day, even just send it out into the ethers before I fall asleep. But I think there is definitely a lot of value to that. Yeah. And I actually, these days, I, as I'm falling asleep, I will repeat a mantra or a word. And a lot of times these days, because when I'm doing activism work, I'm met with a lot of resistance and it's hard not to go to the dark side. And so right before I go to bed, I repeat the word love in my head until like at some point I fall asleep. But that's what I have to keep coming back to so that nothing that is happening in the outside world hardens my heart. Because that's really the key is to remain compassionate and open. And so all of these practices, gratitude practice, and I do meditation every day, like these are sort of the rituals that I have to keep bringing me back to the present and keep me living in appreciation because I am so blessed uh, despite the challenges that I've had in my life. I'm so, so lucky and I'm so grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, it, it, these are tools that anyone can use. Like they're not, they're not copyrighted. <laughs> you don't have to pay a fee. It's free, you know, and the, t- the moments and the, and the, the, the hours and the seconds in the day are going anyway. So why not just take that? 30 seconds to be grateful. It's true. So I'm going to ask you a series of quick questions and I'm going to start with what is uh, your favorite or your most recommended mainstream beginner nutrition book that you could, you know, advise everybody to read that'll give them uh, a footing in moving forward with their health and their nutrition I'll say if you can read it, the China study. <laughs> or or actually, no, no, no. How not to diet. Ooh, that's see, that sounds good. Dr. That McGregor. Sounds good. Yeah. Who's it by again? Dr. McGregor. Dr. He McGregor. also has a book called How Not to Diet. <laughs> mm. But How Not to Diet. I good recommend. One. So you, you mentioned that you used to be an actress and you still dabble in acting. Um, what was your favorite acting job? Yeah. 
Did you catch that? Oh, I worked, I was on a movie, in a movie called Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. And it was a really, really fun set. And uh, this, this goes to the top in terms of uh, leadership. Chris Columbus, who was the director of that film, really stands out to me as like one of my favorite directors that I ever worked with. And honestly, I just had a little part. We only worked together for a few days, but he ran that set with so much kindness and respect for everybody, like from extras to the stunt people to the stars of, of the movie. And so I think that was a lesson in leadership, you know, Awesome. And, I, and I, did, I, I think of him when I think of like, how do I want to lead? Who do I want to help? How do I want to guide? And I just felt like he just, uh, one of these days when our, when our paths cross again, I will share that with him. But he just, he was just such a, he just set the tone for that set. And there are film and TV sets that can be full of tension and be very combative. But it, working with him was like still one of the highlights of my experience of working on film and TV sets. Amazing. Um, you are a yoga enthusiast, also mm -hmm. have been an instructor. What's your favorite yoga pose? It, uh, I, child's pose, I would say these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it probably changes depending on where you are in your life. Yeah, um, it changes depending on my mood and what my body's feeling. But these days, like I finished my meditation practice and the first pose I got into was child's pose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite quote? Be the change you wish to see in the world. I love that one. I had that one in my office and my, my job before my last job. I had that up on the wall. Um, when you choose to do nothing... What do you do? Uh, sit in uh, on the sort of the couch we have in the on the back deck and just kind of like hang out with my dogs and stare at the garden. Nice. Um, what is a trait that you admire most in others? Compassion. Beautiful. And final question. What is one item on your bucket list that you still need to do? There's many. <laughs> you can um, give me top three if you like. <laughs> top three. Uh, I was actually asking Michael the other day, like, do you want to hike the Appalachian Trail? <laughs> That's one of them. Um, Probably doing some type of whitewater rafting. It's been a while, so that would be good. And what else do you want? Do we want to like pack up? We this is Coco. We're I'm also toying with the idea of like renting the house out for like a year and throwing everything in like some kind of an RV type situation, and then just kind of like driving all over the place and seeing where the road takes us. <laughs> I love that. That one's been on my list uh, for a long time. <laughs> Maybe we should it, all just get a few RVs and go together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it scares me a little bit. And I'm like, oh, it's been a little while since I've been pushed outside of my comfort zone. So maybe it's time. But yeah. 
It's not as awesome. Julie, how can people find you and how can they start to work with you if they want to, or even just reach out to you with questions they may have? So my website is balancedlifewithjulie.com. So B-A-L-A-N-C-E, balancedlifewithjulie.com. Uh, they can email me, uh, julie at balancedlifewithjulie.com. They can also find me on Instagram, uh, Julie Brar, uh, B-R-A-R. And actually, if you go to my website, there is a free ebook where I go through some of the ways to kind of adopt healthy habits into your life and everything from like, you know, things that people think are really basic, like drink more water, <laughs> to looking at ways to uh, shift one's nutrition. And uh, so, you know, I have like different programs, I have different online programs and um, individual programs as well. My most popular one is the 30 days, uh, because that seems to be a time frame that people can commit to. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, we'll add all of that in the show notes anyway, so that everybody can find you quickly. Um, and I'm really, really happy that we got to do this. And thank you so much for accepting my invitation. Yeah, I know. This was fun. I love your passion. Keep it up. And hopefully we can connect in person soon. Soon, yes. <laughs> Have a good day. Talk to you later. Thank you. Stay tuned for great new episodes airing every second Thursday on SheilaCorneal.com.